Eyewitness testimony is important. Without it, it's more difficult to get to the veracity of a claim. It's one thing to suggest an idea or make a claim. It's, complete, it's a completely different thing to say, I saw it. I saw it with my own two eyes. Eyewitness testimony was, in a, was important in the Old Testament. In fact, we have the law of witnesses in the book of Deuteronomy, and this was used to convict someone of a capital crime. A capital crime, that crime that would be punishable by death. To get to the veracity of the situation, you had to go to the law of witnesses, and it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, and you'll see it on the screen. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so in order to get to the truth of a situation, to get right down to the, the truth of the veracity of a situation, you had to have two witnesses, two or three witnesses. So the truth of a charge, a truth of a claim is established with at least two witnesses, two to three witnesses. And we see this law apply in the Old Testament and we see it applied giving credence to other happenings as well, not only getting to the bottom of a capital crime, but we see this applied in other situations, in other circumstances. Even Jesus, in John chapter 8, pre presents witnesses to the Pharisees of his identity. If you get into that chapter, in John chapter 8, he's literally laying out a legal case of who he is to the Pharisees, and he's presenting three witnesses. And it's a powerful, powerful chapter. And then, of course, Jesus leaves three witnesses, three eyewitnesses of those who literally beheld his glory. And then, of course, there are a few hundred that are eyewitnesses of the resurrection. So, Jesus leaving three eyewitnesses of those who beheld his glory, of those who were eyewitnesses to the transfiguration, that is what brings us to our text tonight. Tonight we'll take a look at Peter's eyewitness testimony. And of course, he's not the only one. We're going to take a look at the transfiguration, take a look at Peter's testimony. And if you'll remember from that passage that talks to us about the transfiguration, that Jesus was there on that mountain with three of the disciples, James and John, and of course, Peter being the third one. And so tonight, we'll look at Peter's eyewitness testimony. And I believe there are two points that we're going to look at about Peter's testimony. The first one is this, our testimony is not made up. And secondly, we saw and heard who Jesus is. So let's take a look at this tonight in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. Our testimony is not made up. This is what Peter says. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When such a voice came to him 
from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Have you ever been listening to the radio and you hear a song? And, you know, there, there, there have been a lot of great songs written um, down through the years. And we've listened to the radio and the radio, the song comes on and we're just like, you know, yeah, it's great. But have you ever been listening to the radio when you hear a song and you're like, well, that's, that's, that sounds terrible. That sounds made up. I mean, it sounds like, well, we know all songs are made up, right? Every song was made up. But there are some songs that literally feel or sound like they were made up like five minutes ago. And it just has this whole made-up feel. And uh, you, you, know, you know one of those songs. You know what I'm talking about. Who wrote this terrible song? The sad thing about that situation is that if you're hearing it, on the radio, then someone is actually making money on that terrible song. <laughs> People have made the charge that the gospel is made up. They have made the charge that the gospel is a made-up story, that the Bible as a whole is literally a made-up story. You hear this a lot, and it is a charge that has been made for hundreds, thousands of years, people have been saying this. In fact, Peter's addressing it tonight in, in, in our text that we're looking at. This charge of the gospel story being made up and the Bible and, and, and what it says being made up. You'll hear this charge coming today from the, the atheists and what they're called the new atheists. That, yeah, there, there's been atheists around, but they call this band of kind of vocal atheists today, for whatever reason, they call them the new atheists. And uh, the most famous atheist in the world, his name is, anybody know? Richard Dawkins. Richard, yeah, Dawkins. Richard Dawkins. And he, uh, I guess he's a biologist and, but he writes all kinds of books that have nothing to do with biology. And he makes all these philosophical claims and claims about God and, and the Bible. And, um, and I love uh, uh, Dinesh D'Souza, who in critique of Dawkins' work, he says, this is what happens when you let a, a biologist out of the lab. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but anyways... Dawkins has made these types of charges, and in fact, in one of his books, the very title of the book suggests that those who believe in God and believe what the Bible says are literally deluded people. He has a book called The God Delusion, The God Delusion. So if you believe in God and you believe the Bible to be true, then according to Dawkins, you're, you're deluded. You're deluded. And the point Dawkins is making is, is seen, I believe, in at least the last couple definitions of the word deluded or delusion. The first one being this, a false belief or opinion uh, where, where you might uh, get to the phrase, you know, he has delusions of grandeur. You know, that definition. 
And then a term, the definition from psychiatry, which is this, a fixed false belief that is resistant to reason or confrontation with actual fact. And truth be told, that's the definition that Dawkins probably really uh, zeroes in on. He, he would probably suggest that the believer in Christ is deluded to the point of needing psychiatric help. Yeah, that, that's what he would more than likely suggest. I think it's a good question to ask in looking at this whole idea of, is the Bible true? Is the gospel story true? Is belief in God and the Bible, and specifically that Jesus is God, is that a delusion? And are people who believe such things, are they deluded? Well, Peter jumps right into the middle of the question. He jumps right in to answer the question, and he says, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, look, we did not follow cunningly devised fables. The word fables here in the Greek is actually a word that you'll be familiar with. It's actually the word mythos. Mythos. And it it literally means a myth is a story, a legend, especially one that has been embellished over and over. Mythos. And so some people think that the gospel and the biblical record are just ancient myths. And you will see this. This type of suggestion, these types of, of claims being made, that the gospel was a myth, that Jesus is a myth. There are even those that will suggest that Jesus never even actually existed. You, you, you say, really? Yeah, I've actually heard these people. I've actually listened to them make their points. Some people think the gospel and the biblical record are just ancient myths, but Peter rightly insists that his message was no myth. It was history, seen by eyewitnesses, including himself. He is offering himself here in this first chapter of 2 Peter as, hey, I am an eyewitness of who Jesus is. Myths are invented stories. And there are dumb myths. And there are clever myths. The dumb myths, you know, just, you, know you, you just kind of wade right through those, right? And then you get to the, the clever myths. Peter is saying that the gospel is not even a clever, clever myth. It's, it's, it's certainly not a dumb myth, but it's not even a clev, clever myth. It's not man's wisdom or creativity or cleverness. Now, if let's just say that the gospel, the Bible, was a myth, it would be <laughs> the most clever myth ever written in the history of the world. I mean, I have studied this book from cover to cover, and I have made the claim, and others before me have made the claim, that for, for this to come together in the manner that it did, the Bible being written over a 1,500-year period of time by over 40 authors on three continents in at least three languages, 
but yet having a consistent message from cover to cover and revealing to us the person of Christ? If this is a myth, this is, got, this is the most clever myth that there ever was. Because I, it's, it's literally impossible for this to be concocted or, or, or to be made up with the best of man's wisdom. Um, it's incredible. Cleverly invented stories. This is not one of them. Now later in this epistle, Peter will begin to warn Christians about false teaching and false teachers. And, they, and how they've taken the gospel, the true gospel, the true word of God, and how they've taken that and they've turned it and they've twisted it and they've made it to be something that it's not. And, and they've, they've contorted it to be something that amounts to be nothing more than man's wisdom. Now, the Bible is what we need. The gospel is what we need. The word of God is, is the word that is going to set you free. Amen? You, Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. This is what we need. We need the pure, unmessed with, Bible, amen, word of God. This is what we need. We need the straightforward gospel, the straightforward word of truth. Cleverly invented stories were a feature of the theological systems of the false teachers that Peter is going to challenge and has begun to challenge even where we are in the text right now. To challenge the the, the concepts, the cleverly devised fables, the stories that the false teachers would kind of come up with or bring in from some other source and bring in to the teaching of the gospel. Now, there are modern day versions of these guys. The, the people that Peter dealt with that were false teachers, the people that Paul dealt with that were false teachers, there are modern day uh, Examples, modern day versions of these guys. Uh, and, and there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. And I've listened to some of these guys before. It, 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 you know what I'm talking about? Have, you, have you, you listened to some of these guys? I have listened to, I was listening to one particular guy. And I won't mention any names. I'm, I'm not afraid to mention any names, but I don't think it's necessary here. I won't mention any names. But I was listening to this particular guy. And I said to myself, after several minutes of listening to him try to bring forth these, these truths and all this stuff, I sat there and I listened and I said to myself, I said, I've grown up in the church. <laughs> I went to four years of Bible college and studied theology and the Bible and, and all that. And I've been teaching this book and preaching it for over 20 years. And I have no idea what this guy's talking about. <laughs> what on earth is he saying? What on earth is being said? And, 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 and sadly, today, this is what uh, 
is being taught and preached in some places, and I don't talk about this other than to teach what Peter is actually getting at in his second epistle, which is to challenge false teaching and to challenge false teachers. And I think what happens with the false teaching and the false teachers, now there is a reason why they will do this, because they want the people to feel like they're the the holders of some type of special knowledge or special revelation and that you need to come to me and only me so that you can get this this knowledge that you need and if you if if you would just realize what you need because you know if you get this tonight what I'm telling you you're going to have this breakthrough in your life and it's going to be incredible and in and it's right out of the page of the of the first century gnostics it's right out of the page of the first century gnosticism of uh, you know, kind of these secret societies and these holders of special revelation. And what we need is the Bible, the truth of God that is available to every single person, that you can come and receive and receive the true knowledge because what, what, what that type of guy is offering you is a cleverly devised fable. It's a cleverly devised myth. What we need in our lives is the actual word of God that when we receive it as the word of God will become effective in our lives. And so that's what we need. Amen? And so Peter says here in verse 16, we did not follow cunningly devised fables When we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of the truth. We were eyewitnesses of Christ. Which leads us to the next point. The first one is, our story is not made up. And the second one, we saw and heard who Jesus is. Amen? Let's, let's pick it up there at the end of verse 16. Peter says, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter says we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter here uses, he uses the word we. And because he, along with James and John, were those eyewitnesses of his majesty when the three of them were with Jesus on the holy mountain. that He calls it the holy mountain. So we were, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so Peter uses that word we. We were with him. We were with Jesus on the mountain. When Jesus was transfigured before us, he was, he was transfigured. And so here in this text, we have Peter giving us a little bit of his eyewitness testimony of the transfiguration. The question is, 
what did Jesus, what did Peter, James, and John see when they were with him on the holy mountain? He was transfigured. They saw Jesus transfigured before them. And one of the places that this is brought out to us in the, in the gospel is in, in Matthew chapter 17. We see in Matthew 17, Jesus is transfigured in front of them. It's like a transformation. What was this transformation? What's, what was this transfiguration? The, the word for transfigured is the Greek word. The Greek word uh, transfiguration in Matthew 17 is the Greek word uh, metamorpho. Um, and it, it is where we would get our word for metamorphosis or, or that type of change or that type of transformation. Jesus, it, he it was a metamorpho. He was, he was transfigured. And really what we see there in Matthew 17 is really where Jesus had gone up on the mountain with, with these guys. And, and some have suggested this was his inner circle, right? You know, you had the 12 disciples, but then you had this inner circle of Peter, James, and John. And, and literally he was transfigured in such a way as this, uh, it was really a pulling back of the humanity that, was, that, 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 that Jesus was wrapped in, the, this tabernacle, this tent, to, to use a word that, that, that Peter has used several times already in this, in this, in this passage, he, he, he kind of pulls back the curtain, so to speak. And then there's this revelation of the glory of God, of the glory of Christ. And, 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 and they, beheld, they behold it. They beheld the majesty. They, they beheld the beauty of the Lord. And you'll remember from that passage in Matthew 17, though, there was this cloud, a cloud appeared, and, and um, the, the, the idea of the cloud, um, there was a cloud oftentimes when, when Jesus' glory was revealed, when, when, God, or when, God was, uh, when God spoke to the people, when God spoke to uh, Moses, when God spoke to Israel, when the law was given. Uh, all these different times, there's this, uh, this, this cloud, it's a glory cloud. Right. And and God spoke from the cloud. He spoke from the cloud and he said, this is my beloved son. In whom I'm well pleased. Now, Peter tells us here that uh, that Jesus received from God, the father. So the son received from God, the father, verse 17 honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased so the father received honor and glory from the son how's that because the voice came from the cloud this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased now Peter only you know dictates that particular amount of the phrase that was actually spoken. But if you do your study back in Matthew, you know that that's not where uh, God didn't stop there. Amen. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Hear him. Right. And, and so if you remember the account uh, of the transfiguration, you had Jesus, you had Peter, James and John, and then also appearing to them with them were Elijah and Moses. Elijah, Moses picturing the, the law 
that was given that God spoke to the people through the law and then Elijah representing the prophets and God spoke to the people of God through the prophets. And so here are two men, two great men of God representing, one representing the law, one representing the prophets. And these were the, these were the voices that the people heard. These were the voices that the people heard and responded to. And here now... The curtain is being rolled back. Jesus is transfigured. The glory cloud is there. The Father honoring the Son, saying, Look, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. As if to say, You've heard from Moses. You've heard from Elijah. Now you need to hear my Son. You need to hear my Son. And so they heard Him. They heard the Father. They heard the Son because they... Here he is testifying, amen? (laughs) He's testifying about what he heard of the Father and of the Son, amen? So we need to see him. We need to see him. Now, we all want to see God, right? We want to see him. We're looking forward to seeing him. But until then, we have to see with the eyes of our spirit, amen? We We need to see the Lord. We need to be people who see the Lord. Now, I want to jump in here because when you study Christian philosophy uh, and specifically apologetics, which any, any um, apologetics uh, fans, people into apologetics, raise your hand. If you're, yeah, apologetics. Some of you are like, what? Apolog- <laughs> apologizing? No, no, we don't apologize for the gospel. We defend the gospel. And this is exactly a word that was out of First Peter, if you remember. Uh, apologia. And it, it means to bring a defense of the gospel. Amen? And when you get into a lot of the apologetics, and I love it. And I've, re- I've read books. Dinesh D'Souza. I've read William Lane Craig. I've read... Anthony Flew wrote a book about how he was wrong about that there was no God. Um, incredible book. And all these types of great books. Amen. And, and they're great. But I think that they can only, they can take you so far. They can take you mentally so far to, to, to the point where you can say that, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a rational, reasonable statement to make, that when, when you wade through all the arguments for, the, for God, that it is more plausibly true than not that there is a God. And that's kind of the, 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 the full weight of an argument is that the premises are more plausibly true than not, and therefore the, 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 the statement of the, of, the, of the argument kind of is there, if you're following me. Again, what I'm trying to say is that that can only bring you so far. You have to have an encounter with Jesus. You have to have an actual meeting. We we talked about it in 1 Peter, a coming to Jesus moment. You have to have an encounter with Jesus. And this isn't something that you even have one time, but that we meet with Jesus and we look to Jesus and we see Jesus. With, with the eyes of our spirit. And so maybe the agnostic can only say, I don't know. Right? The agnostic says, I don't know. I, and I talk to agnostics. In fact, I had a conversation back and forth with a, with a, with a guy on, on Facebook this week. 
that, um, that, that, that I'm, I'm literally we're praying and trying to bring him back, bring him back to the fold. And, uh, and, and, but, he, but he's gone the other way. And he says, he says Charles, I'm, I'm agnostic. I just don't know. I just don't have the confidence that you have. And I would say that the, that the apologetic arguments give me a certain level of confidence, but they don't give me the ultimate confidence. The ultimate confidence comes with actually meeting the Lord and having a purse coming into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And that's why we need to see him. And we need to hear him. And, uh, and this is so important. Um, the psalmist talks about uh, seeking the Lord um, to behold the beauty. Psalm 27, verse 4. It says, One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The, the psalmist saying, Look, I, I want to see the Lord. I want to behold the beauty of the Lord. And we have a promise from the, 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 God, the prophet Jeremiah. Um, the promise went out to God's people. It said this, if you seek the Lord with all your heart, you will find him. Amen. If you will seek the Lord with all your heart, you will find him. Not like how I used to seek for stuff when I was a kid. You know, I'd lose my baseball glove or whatever. And I'd go and I'd try to find it and I couldn't find it. But I only looked for it for like two minutes. I really didn't look for it with all my heart. God says, look, you will, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. You know, people have said, why doesn't God just make himself plain, right? If God wants you know, everyone to believe and, and um, why doesn't he give us a sign? Why, is this, why doesn't he just make it plain? And my answer is, well, there's two or three good answers to that. Number one, he has given us a sign. <laughs> Number two, he did make himself plain. He literally was born into the world as a baby. Amen. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, he came into this world as the incarnate God. Amen? So he did make himself plain. But I think that there is a little bit of a cloak, if you will, because if that was the only way that people came to God, then I don't think it would be a true coming to the Lord and loving the Lord and, and, and expressing that loyalty to the Lord. And I would say also that he didn't make it so that it was only an intellectual pursuit. He didn't just show up to everybody and say, here I am, believe on me. But he also didn't make it purely an intellectual pursuit because then only the super smartest people in the world would be able to scale that particular mountain. But I think he did it. 
He's God, right? I think he did it in the perfect way, right? <laughs> Amen? I think he set this whole thing up in the absolute perfect way. That those who want to come, that those who want to seek are going to find him. They're going to behold the beauty. And those for, for, forever, for whatever reason, and we, and we can get into that. Paul says that people in Romans 1, he says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress what they know to be true because of the unrighteousness that they want to hold on to. So Peter tells us here, he says, look, we heard from the Lord. We heard from the Lord. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard his voice, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. I want to wrap up with just taking us back. Um, if you were around, for, if you've been around for a little while, back in 2015, before Christmas, I believe it was in the fall, um, I did a series, I did a short series in Matthew. It was called Miracles in Matthew. You remember that? And in that series, I actually did a whole sermon on the transfiguration in Matthew 17. In fact, if you want to go listen to it, it is on the iTunes podcast. It was called Beauty. And there is something, one of the things I said in that particular message was I said this. I, I said, there is something that is absolutely beautiful. There is something that is perfectly beautiful. Not subject to interpretation. Not subject to the, subjective, uh, the subjectiveness of persons. But there is something that is absolutely beautiful. And you ask, what is it? It is the Lord. He's perfect in beauty. Amen? He's the Lord. The Lord is absolutely beautiful. Now, I would want, and I'll close with this, I would want, and I think you would, want every single person to see the beauty of the Lord. And I would want every single person, especially as a preacher, to, to hear the truth of the Lord. To hear God, as God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, hear him. But I think what happens is that people don't hear the truth because they don't see the beauty. They haven't seen the beauty. And we need to be people who are people. You see, Peter was an eyewitness he wasn't just an ear witness, but he's, he was an eyewitness, he says, of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And Christians, we need to be those type of people in the 21st century. We, we've got the truth, and we know that the world needs the truth. Amen? But we need to present we need, to put, we need to talk to people as if 
and we are eyewitnesses in the spirit of the majesty of the Lord. And I think that if we begin to present the beauty of the Lord, that people will begin to be open to the truth of the Lord. Amen? And uh, I think it's a challenging word. I actually heard that put exactly like that last year uh, when I was in California at the, at the worship conference, the Calvary Chapel Worship Conference. And a guy named Evan Wickham uh, was teaching, and um, his brother is Phil Wickham. And uh, anyways, Evan was teaching, and he brought that out in such a way like that. And, and it really hit me as a, as a word for such a time as this. Amen? Um, because you and I know you don't need a, you don't need a whole message of somebody to tell you that the, the world needs the truth of, of the gospel and the truth of the, the word and the truth of, of Jesus Christ. But let us be representatives and spiritual eyewitnesses of the majesty of the Lord. 